You're listening to the Branches HB Podcast. Well, good morning, everyone outside on the live stream here in person in the room. Uh, We got Richard and Julie here this morning. I want to welcome them up to the stage. Would you welcome them as they come up here? This may be their final week, I believe, here in Huntington Beach before they go to Texas, before they head back to Kenya. And uh, I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the great work that they're doing and to really shed a light on an opportunity that we have to really make a difference in these 300 lives of these orphans there at Agape Children's Orphanage. Now, they have done an amazing work, obviously, you know, selling their possessions, picking up, leaving this community. They're embedded in this community for years and years and years. This is an expression and an extension of our fellowship and what God's been doing here in Huntington Beach. Now it's being extended out to Kenya through their work. And uh, they've got a variety of projects that they're stepping into. We're in a series called Word and Deed, and we've been talking about, okay, yeah, the message of the gospel is powerful, let's share it, but we're going to be pairing that with Man, we got to live into this. We got to take action. There's a lot of things that God told us to do alongside this message that we're sharing. Uh, you know, one of those explicit things in the scriptures is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. They are taking up that call in the name of Jesus. So I just wanted to affirm you too and tell you that we are 100% behind you. We want to share the dreams that God has given to the two of you. And right now, they've got, like I said, a lot of projects, but the focus is on these dormitories to take these kids, these 300 kids, out of barns and place them in quality living conditions as they're hearing the gospel, as they're being raised and nurtured in the Christian faith. Now, they'd raised 15000 toward an overall goal of 60000 correct? So halfway to the boys' dorm, which is going to cost 30000 and then there's the additional 30000 for the girls' dormitory. So last service, we announced that as elders, we had prayed, and we're contributing a gift of $10,000 to move us meaningfully toward the goal of finishing off that boy's dorm. And this was a surprise to them. We didn't have any check prepared or something like that, a giant check, but just told them. I'm sorry about that. But there's actually an additional $10,000 that we want to give. We're going to give $20,000. You know, we didn't want to waste all the surprises first service. And just, you know, have that be the only moment. And we're telling everyone later, that means the boys' dorm is going to be completed. We know that. And we're starting to raise money for that girls' dormitory as well. What's so cool is these two get to go back and they get to share the news with these young ones. You know, our kids raise money to give soccer balls and toys and curriculum. And now we get to raise funds together out of your contributions to make this dream a reality. So what I want us to do, and I want to challenge you, is to give today, to see that we could actually raise the rest of the funds so that they go back and say, we're not just building a boys' dormitory, but we're building a girls' dormitory as well. And so that means an additional $25,000 that we hope to raise today uh, so that they can carry this news back. That means all of us prayerfully considering how we can sacrifice toward this goal. As a pastor in this community, I don't put before you an opportunity that I'm not willing to step into myself. My wife and I will pray, what does it mean for us to sacrificially give toward this work? And then we're going to give today. 
And if you have that opportunity and you have the resources, there's going to be giving kiosks outside. There's going to be ways that you can give shown on the screens at the end of service. And they're going to be outside so that you can pray for them, encourage them, hear stories, see photos of the work that's going on on the ground. But we want to make this miracle dream a reality and partner with you guys because they've sacrificed so much to live the gospel as they're preaching the gospel Let's join in with them as their church family. Are we in agreement on that? All right. So thank you, Richard and Julie. Uh, amazing to have you guys with us this morning. Amazing to be able to partner with the two of you. We had to save a surprise for the second service as well. First service has no idea. We're going to have to let them know uh, that the, the surprise is even bigger. And we're hoping that when we get to the end of this day, we've got even more blessings to report through our contributions together. Now, what we did talk about last week in this series, Word and Deed, this series that we're in for three weeks while we paused from the book of Matthew, we talked all about how necessary it is for us to use our words when we're sharing the gospel. Because the gospel, in its very nature, it's a message. It's a message that demands a response. It's going to be rejected at times, but it needs to be shared nonetheless. And that was the whole point of last week. Let's share it. Let's share the message. Let's speak the good news. Let's speak about Jesus, right? Even if we don't feel gifted in it. All we need to do is witness. All we need to do is testify to what we know God has done in our own lives. But even as we talk about how words are required when we share the gospel message, it's also our actions. It's also our deeds that need to be paired with the words that we are speaking. You know, and not just in the context of this community, but beyond this community. Now, I'll say this week, what we're focused on is really talking about how, yeah, those deeds, our lifestyle, our actions combined with gospel preaching in the concrete relationships in this community, it can either magnify the message that we preach or it can obscure the message that we preach. Our actions, our lifestyle, the way that we interact with one another in the bounds of this fellowship and community, it's either going to magnify or obscure that beautiful gospel message that we talked about last week. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because obscuring the gospel is exactly what is going on in our first reading this morning in the Corinthian church. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. One of the ushers will pass one to you. The verses will also be on the screen. Here in the Corinthian church, Right? They had received the message of Jesus. They claimed to believe the gospel, but at the same time, they were lacking integrity in their faith. They weren't living in line with what they said they believed. And that was manifested in a variety of ways, either because they were dividing over these different leaders. You know, you could consider it to be like ancient Christian celebrity. Uh, you know, they're dividing over that, and they're still soliciting prostitutes, and they're even taking up court cases against one another in the public court system. And that's what Paul takes issue with right here. I just lost one of my lenses and my glasses. I can close that eye. We can still make this happen here. The show must go on here. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Don't look at me, all right? Just look at the screen. Uh, what? Oh, we got more readers. Well, what's your magnification, Mary? I want to make sure that we're not like... Are, are we on the same level here? Oh my gosh, we're the same, Mary. All right, so First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Thank you. If any of you has a dispute with another, Paul says, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? 
And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Like, do you guys understand the gospel that you proclaim in word? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, in this passage, like I said, Paul is bringing up one of countless examples of how the Corinthian church is lacking integrity in the faith. They are not living into the words that they've accepted and declared. And there's a couple things here that are grinding Paul's gears, right? The fact that somebody has wronged somebody else in the community, that's not good. The fact that they don't have the wisdom to figure out how to solve the issue. The fact that they're not able to go to leaders in the community who have the wisdom to solve the issue. And the fact that they're willing to duke it out with each other rather than just taking the hits and being wronged. And all of this, really, it bugs Paul because they're doing it in front of outsiders, in front of unbelievers, in front of the watching world. How can they then share the gospel with those individuals? What grounds do they have? So you're telling me in the gospel message that God sent his son, who in humility laid down his life, for forgiveness for sinners, that through faith in him, they might be joined to God and each other forever into eternity. And yet you are going to wrong each other, and you're going to, in pride, stick to your guns, and you're going to take each other to court, and no one's going to do anything at all to, do, to breach this divide that is now happening in the body of Christ this is antithetical. This is the opposite of what you say you claim in the gospel message. It's a conflict between those two things. It's like, you know, a doctor who recommends a vaccine that he won't take. You're telling me to do this, but you won't take it. It's like a server who won't eat the food at their own restaurant where they're serving. Well, you know, what's the best thing on the menu? Nothing. I'm not going to eat here. You go, what in the world? It's like a preacher who gives a message to congregants that they won't themselves obey. It's a conflict between word and deed. You know, the Apostle John highlights this apparent conflict between word and deed in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He says, whoever claims to love God, so whoever in word is saying, I love God, I follow God, they're making that claim with their words, and yet hates, demeans, thinks less than a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You, know, you say you love God, you claim to love God, but you can't even follow the command to love the person that's immediately in front of you. 
And you want me to think that there's some integrity and some substance to this unseen relationship that you have with your Father in heaven? Oh, wait. This is, this is in conflict. It's the same assessment that Paul has of the Corinthian church. He's saying, you guys are living like liars. And you're making the gospel community, the church, out to be a total sham in front of the watching world. Friends, the world is watching right now. It's always been watching in America. And one reason that the world is watching in America is because there's just so many self-proclaimed Christians in this country. You know, in that day and age, it's like, oh, you know, they're a little group of people that, you know, they kind of hear about from, oh, the Christians, you know, oh, I don't know much about them. Oh, no, there's these two guys fighting on the court. Everybody knows about Christians in America because in the last several generations, there's just so many of us. So we're always on center stage in our culture. And it's not just outsiders who are watching the church, who are viewing us. It's our children. And when I say that, I don't mean you know, your biological children. Some of you have biological children. I'm talking about the children of the church, you know, which concerns all of us whether or not we have biological children. The next generation of the church is also watching us and taking note of what we say as well as what we do. And the stats are really frightening from my generation of the children who grew up in the church. One of the latest stats from a couple years ago is that 59% of millennials from my generation who were raised in the church have left the church. 59%. I'm not talking people who were outside the church. I'm talking 59% of my generation, my peers, millennials, who were raised in the church, who were able to see, who were watching, they are no longer in the church. That is a radically horrible, abysmal number. And we've got to reckon with that. Did they leave because they were rejecting the gospel message of Jesus? Well, maybe, yes, some of them were. But were they possibly also leaving because they were reared in an ungracious legalism? Is it also possible that they saw that sinners were demonized rather than ministered to? Is it also possible that they had deep, thoughtful questions that could have elicited deep and prayerful answers and reflection on the word, but instead they got black and white, pat, cliche answers? Is it possible that they heard a lot of messages that were much more American than they were kingdom? Is it possible that they were going into church and their family was putting on a happy face, but there was no love in their parents' marriage, no matter how much they smiled at people on Sunday? Or that when they left church on Sunday, all they heard was every negative thing about everybody that someone had run into on the other side? It's mixing up the signals. Oh, it's the good news. It's the gospel. Church is a good thing. But at the same time, so many people have associated very negative experiences with all those good things. With my son and all my children, I try to reward positive, constructive behavior. You know, I'm trying to teach my son to surf, and one of the reasons is I want him to avoid the shame of being a young man growing up in Huntington Beach, Surf City, without the ability to surf. I have experienced the pain of that. So, you know, I tell him, look, you're going to go out with me five times, and you're going to practice five times on your own accord, and then I'm going to reward you with something that you naturally enjoy. Because he's a little reticent against new experiences with boogie boarding. It took three times, three practices, before he owned it. And it was like his own, and now he wants to do it. He enjoys it. That's good. It's constructive. But serving is the same thing. And at the end of five, 
uh, training sessions, he gets to get a video game. Because yes, he can play video games for 20 minutes, three sessions a day. If you want to talk to me about my parenting later, we can do that. I know you've got different opinions about video games. We can go there. But I'm just saying, that's what my son naturally gravitates toward, all right? And so I'm going to reward that behavior. And as he goes along, he's going to develop an appreciation for it himself. But you know, what if every time my son tried to learn something constructive and good, he tries to ride his bike for the first time, he tries to go boogie board, he tries to go surfing. Every time he attempted, what if I slap him in the face? Slap him in the face. Oh, you trying that? Slap you in the face. You know, oh, you're trying to ride your bike? Slap you in the face. Doing your homework? Slap you in the face. You're going to mix up the signals, right? You're going to take something constructive and good, and you're going to attach it to a lived negative experience. And the signals are going to be going in opposite directions. So I want to say this. Look, everybody, when they grow up, they got to make grown-up adult decisions for themselves. And my generation, they was raised in the church, they got to reckon with their experiences, and they need to make decisions for the faith for themselves. Okay, but at the same time, I really believe that Jesus may hold some people accountable for the ways that they mixed up the signals for a generation. That when they heard the gospel message and when they came into this beautiful thing that Jesus has created, the church, and they got slapped in the face, slapped in the face, slapped in the face, now to the point where I know people, they can't even step foot into a church. I'm talking a healthy church, not even an unhealthy church. They can't step foot in, in a healthy church because they have this instinctual, guttural, natural, physical repulsion to even being present in the community. That came from experience. But it wasn't just the experiences that some of them had in the concrete relationships in church community. It was also due to leadership. It was also due to pastors. The leadership that made a bundle of money. The leadership that engaged in illicit sexual relationships. The leadership that continuously participated in cover-up after cover-up of scandal. The leadership that shirked accountability. The leadership that made a following for themselves and grew their churches by dividing the family of God and dividing families themselves. You understand that? There are pastors, there are leaders in the church over the last couple decades, right now more than ever, who are gaining their following, building their following by dividing up the body of Christ. They're parasites on the lifeblood of God's people. Division cells, there was this report that came out about Facebook, Facebook had evidence. So they acquired evidence on their own company that its algorithms, so the way it was programmed, encouraged polarization and, quote, exploited the human brain's attraction to divisiveness. Now, can you believe that? We've studied the human brain enough to know that now we have like this natural propensity to want to be divided and angry. I call it sin. They've got fancy language for it, right, in, in, sec- in the secular world. We just call it sin, right? But, but they found that their programs, their very hard wiring exploits our, you know, leaning towards sin, toward dividing with one another. So when they found out that their platforms encourage polarization, top executives, including CEO Mark Zuckerberg, killed or weakened proposed solutions. So they could solve these algorithms. They could actually change the way that they're programmed. And yet the top executives, including Mark Zuckerberg, choose not to? 
wait a minute, they want us to remain polarized? They want to keep exploiting that human propensity toward division? Why would they want to do that? Division sells. Division sells. It sells on social media and keeps people connected. It sells on the media, the news media. It sells for politicians. It sells for pastors. There are pastors growing churches like mad, selling books like mad because they are peddling division in the family of God. And I have this prophetic weight about it in this generation that is so well articulated in the book of Jeremiah, because this wasn't the first time in history that the shepherds of God's people have been neglecting their primary responsibilities. Jeremiah says this, and I think it's a word for our generation. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you've done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock. I love the responsibility God takes upon himself. He says, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing. 59% of my generation is missing. No longer will they be missing. Woe to the shepherds that are scattering my flock. Woe to the shepherds that are scattering the sheep of his pasture. And I will spend my life, successful or not, searching out those sheep, seeking to bring them back, finding those who are missing so that they can come to a pasture where they'll be tended to again and they won't fear and they won't be terrified any longer. I'll bring them back to the good shepherd. Now, we've talked about what can obscure the good shepherd, what can obscure the good news. How do we magnify the good shepherd? How do we magnify the good news of what Jesus has done? How do we bring others to him? Is it through our vindictiveness against culture? That's going to do it. That's going to change everything. Is it through all the particulars of how we think the American government should be, you know, run and economic policy? Is that just going to break forth revival in our country? You know, is it through slick marketing and campaigns? Is that the way we're, we're going to magnify Jesus? Jesus told us how we would magnify him, and he told us how we would magnify the gospel in his prayer before the cross, John 17. I pray, Jesus, Jesus says, I'm praying that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then 
the world will know. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. He prayed that we would be one, not just in word. The kind of unity that he experienced with his Father in heaven. Remember what he says in the Gospel of John? He says, I only say what I, you know, hear my Father saying. I'm only doing what I see my Father doing. In the same sense, that would be the way that we would be unified with one another and with Jesus. It's a unity in reality. Indeed, in action, in lifestyle. Then the world will know. Then the world will know. And the world was beginning to know 50 days later. Because there you have the Apostle Peter, and he's preaching the good news. And the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers, God's living presence. And they're filled with the living presence of God. The glory that the Father shared with Jesus, he shares with his people, right? They receive the Holy Spirit. And then what results on the other side? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching, the word. Right? They devoted themselves to the word. But that wasn't all. Look at this list. To fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What resulted is they became one. In word and in deed, they lived the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. Now, was it any surprise that the Lord added to their number daily, on the other side of that, those who were being saved? What if they had only done the first thing and not the rest? What if they had only devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, only to the word, and then we had the inverse of all these other realities? Everyone lived their own separate lives. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the word, but they lived separate lives, and they ate alone, and they listened to entertainment media rather than God and prayer. What if they were filled with anger and suspicion all the time because of their divisive church leaders? What if no one sold anything and gave to no one in need? What if they stopped regularly meeting together in groups and thought constantly of only acquiring more for themselves? What if no one ever darkened their you know, doorway of their house? And when they did gather, they just went through the worship motions and consequently were despised by the general public. Do you think anyone would be added to their number in that case? Word and deed. Word and deed. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Real love. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. This is what's going to make you guys stand out as my disciples. You're declaring this gospel of love. I'm giving you this command. You love one another in the same love of me, the message that you preach. And when you do this together, that's when they're going to know you're my disciples if you love one another. So friends, when I look at the landscape of culture, I don't fear the threats outside of us. 
I don't fear anything outside the walls of our fellowship, the boundaries of our fellowship with one another, because what can anything do to us? What can anything do to us? You know, Jesus said, if you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. It's not, it has nothing to do with anybody else. That's completely contingent upon us who believe in Jesus. You know, okay, if we abide, we'll be successful. We'll bear fruit. If we love one another in concrete ways, the world will know we're Jesus' disciples. You know, that, that's spiritual integrity. There is nothing, there's no threat that can come against us that can steal our spiritual integrity from us. There's no movement in this country that can outvote our spiritual integrity out from underneath us. Our spiritual integrity living in line with the gospel is something that we, only we, are the ones who can trade away, that we can relinquish, that we can compromise on. Now, we're called to proclaim this powerful message and to live in line with it in union with one another in love, word and deed. And when we do, the Lord will add to our number those who are being saved daily. And when we do, the world will know that Jesus was sent by the Father. And when we do, we will show ourselves to be Jesus' disciples. So I have some questions for reflection for each of us as we consider this call to bolster that spiritual integrity in our lives in line with the gospel that we proclaim. My first question is this, is there someone you need to reconcile with in line with the gospel? Is there someone you need to reconcile with in line with the gospel? And what I mean by that is there's a way you can go about reconciliation where you say, you know what, I'm just going to let that go, that issue with that person. I love them. I still harbor all these misgivings. I can't stand them. I hope I never run into them. When I see them, I'll avoid them. But I love them. You know, there's a way to say you love someone in word and it's not connected with reality. Reconciliation in light of the gospel demands a laying down of life and pride going in humility, graciously giving forgiveness to someone who may not even receive that forgiveness. You know, when we were planted, or when we became independent, rather, from Rock Harbor, it was essentially a church split. Some of you were here for that four years ago. We were six years Rock Harbor, Huntington Beach, We've been four years branches. When we broke off, it was essentially a church split. Yesterday, our elder board and our former elders sat together at a table of fellowship with the present elders of Rock Harbor. And we had a meal together. And we took communion together. And we sang a hymn together. And as we shared about our experiences... One of the elders that was leading Rock Harbor at the time that we split off spoke up and said, we made a mistake. We made a mistake. And we don't want to look back at all that God is doing through the branches community and say, oh, we don't have any share in that whatsoever. We're distanced from that. We want to be able to say we planted this community. We want to say 
that we share in what God is doing in this community that originated with us. And I turned to him and I said, well, you did plant us. We were commissioned at Rock Harbor to begin this community, but we're seeking your blessing on where we are today. He said, you have our blessing. You have our blessing. Now, I could have just preached on the stage a month ago, and that was that, and we move on with our lives. Reconciliation that happens by the gospel, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. So is there anyone that you need to reconcile with in line with the gospel to do that sort of work with? Are you becoming prey for divisive wolves is a question I'm asking you, or are you praying for unity with Jesus? You see what I did there with pray? Yeah, that was natural. It just kind of flowed as I was. <laughs> are you becoming prey for divisive wolves or are you praying for unity alongside Jesus? Division sells and people are buying it. Are we buying it? Are we the consumers of the division that's being sold right now? Someone is growing a platform. Somebody is making a name for themselves by creating stumbling blocks in between brothers and sisters so that we both call in the name of Jesus. We both believe he's Lord. We both say it's through faith alone that we're saved. We're both saying, I want to repent and change my life and live for God. Oh, but we can't be in fellowship because now there's this stumbling block and this stumbling block and this stumbling block and this stumbling block where we don't see eye to eye. And they're making a name, creating those boundaries between us. And these are spiritual leaders. Are you being preyed upon by these divisive wolves? Or are you praying for unity alongside Jesus? He prayed for unity and real union with one another. That has to be the disposition of our heart. Are you living into a picture of true church community as seen in Acts chapter 2? And the question there just implies that this has to be real, like this. You know, you to me, to you to you, to you to you. It has to be real because we can't go out into the city and declare, oh, the Lord has forgiven us, reconciled us to himself, to one another. God is creating this countercultural community that isn't like the rest of the world, that is salt and light and modeling what it looks like to have God's presence at the center of relationships. We can't say that. And then people go, okay, I believe. And they come in, and it's like, all right, now your next step is to attend the gathering once a week, twice a week, or twice a month, or once a month. Like, you know, show up for the show and then leave. You know, that's the way. That's the way that we're a unified people. It has to have substance. It has to mean something. It has to be that... There are people in your home and you're sharing meals and you're praying together. And when someone's in need, you're selling your things, you're sharing your resources, like you're bearing up in relational conflicts and doing the work and sticking it out. And I mean, then the world will know. Then the world will know. Amen. So are you living into a picture of true church community as seen in Acts chapter 2? Word and deed. If you don't align in a positive way with these questions, you feel some sense of conviction. 
the Lord saw fit to include these letters of the church from the very beginnings of its origin to let us know that, yes, okay, this has been something we've been fighting for for thousands of years. There wasn't just this little insulated period where everything was perfect. There were good times and there's some bad times. It's all recorded in the Bible for our encouragement and correction. So if you feel a bit of correction, that's not a problem. You might say, I haven't positioned my life in such a way with my priorities and schedule that I can even embrace this. Well, then that's an opportunity to reconsider it, to put it before the Lord and see what he does. Let's pray for these very realities as as we go before the Lord and ask for that empowerment of the Holy Spirit to lead us in these questions we're asking, these weighty questions. And Jesus, we just want to declare that your gospel is perfection. It is, it is true. It is good news. It is right. There is nothing lacking in your message, Jesus. But we confess at times there are things lacking in our spiritual integrity. And Lord, you provided a means for us to be renewed and restored. Your constant flow of grace because of the cross, the constant forgiveness that we have, Jesus, that renews us and calls us higher. So, Lord, increase the spiritual integrity of your church that we might not just proclaim what is true, but that we might live what is true alongside it. Lord, if there aren't people... Rather, if there are people that we aren't reconciled with, that we aren't living in line with the gospel concerning, Lord, would you call those people to mind? Lord, we want to do the work in humility and lay down our lives. The world is watching. The children of the church are watching. How do we conduct ourselves? Lead us, as far as it depends on us, to real reconciliation. Lord, will we join you in praying for unity? That we be able to identify any one of these stumbling blocks that gets placed in front of the church. God, if we keep dividing and dividing and dividing, there'll be no group left to even magnify your gospel. We lose so many along the way. May no more be missing. May there be no more fear and suspicion and anxiety among brothers and sisters that you've joined together forever. We have enough that unites us in your Holy Spirit to face any challenge that's going to come our way. Let's be confident of that. We join you in that prayer for unity. We want to live it. And Lord, help us position our lives to make decisions to be that picture, Acts chapter 2. The only way this city of Huntington Beach is going to not just hear, but see the gospel as if we're living it, as if it's actually happening in reality among us, being practiced among us. So Lord, call us. Call us into that practice and share our lives, share our resources, share our time. Share us with those we're joined to here and into eternity. Thank you, Lord. 
for the conviction, the encouragement, the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me this morning as we praise our Lord together? One mind and one spirit, just like Jesus prayed for, praising him together, pressing in to these difficult questions, but the beauty of these visions in God's word. Thanks so much for listening to the Branches HB podcast. For more information on Branches, you can visit our website at brancheshb.com or stay up to date with us on Instagram at brancheshb. As always, we'd love to have you at one of our Sunday gatherings. So come visit us at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Locations are available on our website. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.